So we kind of mentioned last week that chapters 13 through chapter 16 are all really one message in a sense. This is Jesus speaking what's called the upper room discourse. And he's, this is the, the, the same night uh, that he's going to be betrayed, the night before he's going to be crucified. And he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing them for the fact that he's going to be crucified, he's going to be uh, buried, <coughs> and he's going to be resurrected. That, that, that the relationship is going to change. And we saw even last week how yeah, these guys were, were stressing about this. They were troubled about this because they loved Jesus. They really, really loved him. They were close to him. They didn't want to see the relationship change. They didn't want him to go. And so what we see in John chapter 15 is really Jesus explaining how this relationship they've had can continue even after he's gone. How does that relationship continue? This is what he's talking about. And I think that in itself is important to uh, understand because as we get into some verses that are sometimes tricky and um, to uh, interpret, that where where good people have different views on, I think it's important for us to remember that this is Jesus wanting to comfort his disciples about the fact that the relationship he has with them is going to continue. So let's keep that in mind. So really what I want to do is give you kind of, there's three sort of things that I see here. Um, <clears throat> just kind of a way to, to help us think about what Jesus is saying. One is the Jesus is going to talk about the reason that the relationship can continue. What are the, what are the reasons it can continue? And then he's going to talk about the requirements. Well, what has to happen on, on our part for those relationships, to, for that relationship to continue? And then lastly, he's going to talk about the results, because it's not just so that we can sort of relate to Jesus in some sort of private corner somewhere, but he intends that to, to have an evidence, to have a, a fruitfulness that's going to impact other people. So pick it up in verse 1, and Jesus says, <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, we don't have a whole lot of grapevines around. There's actually one in my back garden. We have a grapevine grows on our fence, but it's not very common here because the weather's not warm enough, really, to have grapevines grown all the time. But in this area of the world, everybody had grapevines. They were everywhere, and there are vineyards everywhere. But it's not just the fact that this was kind of a common uh, site that Jesus chose us for a metaphor. The, the reality is the nation of Israel was uh, had as, as its symbol a vineyard or a grapevine. In fact, um, during the Maccabean times, which would have been a couple year, hundred years before Jesus uh, came on the scene, the coins that they minted, uh, the image they used for Israel was a grapevine. And so there was this understanding among, among the Jews that basically they were the grapevine, and, and that basically if you, wanted to be, uh, if you wanted to be in the place where you're in relationship with the vine dresser, the father, you had to abide in the grapevine. You had to stay in Israel. So the covenant was made to Israel. They're the grapevine. They're, the, they're whom the Father is, is taking care of and dealing with. And so this is where you need to abide. So Jesus is taking that to, to a whole other level. He's saying basically, look, it's not the nation of Israel that's the grapevine. It's me that's the grapevine. I'm the true vine, he says. Now this is important because, uh, especially for these guys, because remember, these guys are, are going to experience, and Jesus talked, we'll talk about this even in John 15, we won't get into it, but he talks about it even in John 15, that these disciples, because they're his disciples, they're going to be ostracized by their Jewish brothers and sisters. They're going to be pushed out of fellowship with Israel. 
And to be pushed out of fellowship, it's not just the broken relationships that are painful. It's the idea that you're no longer in that place of God's covenant people. And Jesus is wanting them to understand, listen, uh, even if you get pushed out of Israel, you're still part of God's covenant people because I'm the basis of the covenant. I'm the true vine. And so this kind of brings in that first kind of understanding of the first reason. Um, the reason the relationship can continue is because it's not dependent upon their union with Israel, but it's dependent upon their union with Jesus. And because He's going to resurrect, because He's going to ascend, because He endures forever, because He's God the Son, there's no reason to think that that relationship can't continue, that that, that, that place of being with God can't continue. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that's the father, the vine dresser, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruits. Now this idea of taking away, some would say this as, as, a, as a reference to, it doesn't bear fruit, so God, you're, you're no good uh, to, the, to the vineyard, so God breaks you off and chucks you into the fire. But you might have a note in your margins, like I do, that says to lift up. And I think that's a, a better translation, to lift up. And it's this idea that you've probably seen grapevines, that they're meant to be pruned in such a way, that they're, they're meant to grow with just a few uh, strands, anywhere from like two to four strands that kind of come out straight across. And those strands, half of those branches have to be held up off the ground. Because if not, they'll go right on the ground. And what happens is, as soon as it begins, that branch begins to bear some fruit, the mud from the rain and stuff will cover it up, and the fruit will never come to maturity. It'll be ruins. And so the idea of, of being lifted up is what every vine dresser would do is uh, when they, the branches they wanted to keep, they would lift up, and they would tie them to some sort of a trellis, tie them to some sort of a, uh, uh, something to hold that vine up. And that's the idea. The idea of pruning is obvious. It's pruning, and, and, and every branch has to be pruned back. And one of the things about this great uh, branch that we have, this great vine we have in our back garden, is that we have to every year after it, it grows wild. Like it doesn't. It's about this time it'll start just start to bud. And by the time you get to uh, September, it's just everywhere. And I'm having to prune as we go. Um, and uh, the thing is, at, at the end uh, in winter, you have to prune that thing all the way back because if you don't, it'll just it'll be a mess and there'll be any fruit on it. And and so. Pruning has to do with cutting off um, the branches that, that won't bear fruit or cutting off the branches that have uh, borne fruit because the fruit only grows on new growth. It only comes off of new growth. And so it's cutting away anything that will hinder fruit production. Cutting off dead wood, cutting off uh, wood that's kind of done what it can do and it's not going to do anymore. And so the whole idea here in verse 2 is that Jesus is saying this vine dresser, the father, is the one who's maintaining the vine. He's lifting it up. He's pruning it back. He's doing the work. And so again, what's the reason that this relationship is going to continue? Because the father's the one who's maintaining the relationship. He's the one that makes sure it's going to take place. It's going to keep going. Okay? Then he says in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now this kind of brings us back to something that Jesus had said earlier in this conversation in verse or chapter 13 when um, when he goes to wash Peter's feet. You guys remember? He goes to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, you won't wash my feet. And he says, if you won't, I won't wash your feet, we can't have any kind of relationship. He goes, okay, Lord, my whole body. No, 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 Peter. Just your feet, you know. And he says, look, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you, but not all of you. And he means not all the people because, of course, Judas was still there at this point. So he's reiterating that without Judas being there, saying to them, you guys are all clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. In other words, the point's pretty clear here as Jesus is saying, listen, it's me declaring you clean that makes you clean. 
And this is, again, the, the other reason why this relationship can continue, because it's dependent upon Jesus declaring us clean, not us cleaning ourselves up, not us maintaining ourselves, not us abiding in Israel, but Jesus declaring us clean, Him saying, you are clean based on what I'm going to do for you. Now, if you jump over to verse 9, he says, As the Father loved me, I've also loved you. Therefore, abide in my love. Now, we probably, have you guys all read this before? That verse before? Have you already guys, okay. It's so familiar that we can easily kind of forget about how profound that is. And this is why I'm so hot on this whole idea of the Trinity, this, this reality that God's three in one. Because the, the, the truth is that this love that God the Father and God the Son have, uh, have enjoyed, they have enjoyed for eternity past. It's a permanent, perfect love. And so when Jesus says, I've loved you that way, we need to think about how amazing that is. We need to actually take the time to meditate and to think about how great it is to be loved. How, how much does the Father love the Son? Can you imagine God the Father ever being disappointed in God the Son? Can you imagine God the Father ever wanting anything less than close proximity with God the Son? Can you imagine these guys ever having any kind of break in their relationship? No, they're one. There's only one God. So the closeness is beyond, it's beyond description, really. And so there's this idea that, that he's saying, listen, this commitment, this closeness, this intimacy... That if I was had with the Father, I have now brought to you. And again, this is a, a, should be pretty obvious, but what he's basically saying is that this, the reason this relationship can continue is because it's dependent upon, it's dependent upon Jesus, um, Jesus' love for us. Not our love for Him, His love for us. That's why the relationship continues. Now, these, these themes are, are, are throughout Scripture. So, talking about the reality of Jesus declaring this clean. Who's got Ephesians 5? Nice and loud so Neil can hear it. 5.26. Yeah. Um, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's right. And who's the he in that context? He, as husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Yeah. So it's Christ who's done that, right? So as husbands, those of us that are married, so that would be two of us, um, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, we're called to wash our wives in the Word because our great husband, Jesus, washed us in the Word. He cleansed us. He, he declared us clean. What about 1 Peter one twenty two? Who's got that? It's supposed to be ready, Esther. Um, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Hmm. So, so this, that... that idea that we've been loved, therefore we should love. We've been cleansed, uh, been born again, therefore the result should be us loving. Now, what about this fact that, uh, of Jesus' love for us, God's love for us? Who's got Romans 8, 38, 39? Is that you, Brooke? No, who's got that? That's you, Sam, yes, right. So I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things presented, nor things to come, nor heights, nor death, nor any other created thing. Amen. Can you think of anything that doesn't fit in that list? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now this is important because Jesus is wanting to make sure his disciples understand, listen, there's the reasons, every reason 
that this relationship can continue is dependent upon me. It's dependent upon uh, the reality that um, it, it's not your connection to Israel, but your connection to me. It's dependent upon uh, the fact that my father is the one who's going to maintain this relationship. He's going to make sure that the growth that needs to happen happens. It's dependent upon the fact that I've already declared you clean. It's dependent on the fact that I've already given you the love that I've already always had from the father. It's dependent upon me. That's so important. And I think what happens is, is that <clears throat> maybe because we've heard that communicated to us in a cheap way that we, we devalue it. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's because we've, we've heard so many God loves you sermons that we think, oh yeah, okay, yeah, we know God loves us. And we, don't, we, we, we forget that you know, when, when Jesus' disciples, those he was closest to on this earth, are, are freaking out because he's talking about his departure, that his comfort is based on that. It's based on, look, do you understand? This relationship is completely based on me, what I've done, what I'm doing. I called you, you didn't call me. I chose you, you didn't choose me. I pursued you, you didn't pursue me. I'm going to maintain this relationship. It's important because the same is true for us, isn't it? And we can't forget that. I mean, I constantly forget that. I mean, I don't forget the, the idea of or the concept of it, but I constantly forget the reality of that. I, I'm constantly trying to go back and to relate to God as if it's all dependent upon me. As, as opposed to, he hasn't already, already done it. And one of the things that I'm learning to do more and more is to, uh, is to remember that if I have any inkling, even that sense of, oh man, I really need to seek God more. Man, I haven't prayed like I should pray. I need to, I'm so, you know, unappreciative when I read my Bible. Whatever it is that I'm feeling bad about, that's not me making myself feel bad. You know, that's not, that's that, even that sort of inkling that things should be better than they are, where does that come from? It comes from God pursuing me. It comes from God desiring me. Now, I can twist that. I can misunderstand that. The enemy can beat me up with some of that stuff. But the truth is, any desire I have for God whatsoever is because God has pursued me. He's started the relationship, and He's going to maintain the relationship. So that's the reasons the relationship can continue. So what are the requirements, though? So is there anything that, that has to do with our part? Well, look what he says, verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, it's a pretty obvious truth from the metaphor that he's using. If you have, uh, if when I have that grapevine that begins to grow, when I prune off the branches that don't have any fruit and I chuck them aside, you know what happens? Nothing. <laughs> they just sit there until eventually they wither away and they're gone. They, they, they don't bear fruit. They cannot bear fruit. They, they have to be connected to the vine. There's no other way. Now, the, 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 the thing is, when he talks about uh, you abide in me and I in you, he's talking about this, this reality of the fact that, um, as we talked a little bit last week, that Christ is going to indwell us via the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, if you remember, if you go back really quickly to chapter 14, verse uh, 16, we read this last week, 
where Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Remember we talked about another of the same kind? That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But Jesus says, "You, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you, he says. This is why the, the book of Romans in Romans 8 talks about the Holy Spirit as this describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, that He actually dwells in us. So here's the very first requirement, the most important requirement. Complete dependence on the indwelling Christ. We're completely dependent upon God's Spirit. Completely. The only reason, only way we can continue this relationship is because God dwells in us by His Holy Spirit. No other way. That's it. And that never changes. There's never a situation where God says, you know what, you do on your own for a while. Never. It never works that way. Because you can't do anything on your own. When Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he means it. You can do nothing. It doesn't mean that you, uh, doesn't mean you can't uh, perform any actions independent of Christ. People cannot know Jesus, and they perform all kinds of actions. He can even do good works. But he's saying, you can have no relationship with me apart from me. You can have no relationship with the Father apart from me. You can do nothing of eternal value apart from me. No fruit's going to come from this relationship unless it's me who does it. You're completely dependent upon me. I think one of the tensions that we need to get uh, into our head as believers is that God says you're responsible for the commands he gives you, but God also says you're dependent upon him to fulfill those commands. So God doesn't say, well, you can't do it, so, you know, you're not accountable. But he doesn't say, look, um, you can do it, therefore you're all on your own. He says, look, you can't do this without me, but I'm still commanding you to do this. Why? Because that's where faith comes in. We have to walk by faith. We've got to believe, okay, Jesus, if you're in me, I can take some of these steps. They might be baby steps. They might be stumble and fall after I've taken a couple. But still, I can do this if Christ dwells in me. It's what Paul says. It's what Paul, Paul learned to mature in, in the book of Philippians. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. He knew all that God had called him to do. He could only do it through Christ. But because he had learned that Christ was faithful to work in and through him, he knew, I can do this. I can do what God's called me to. Okay? Now, look at verse 6. This is one of the controversial verses, one of the tough ones. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burnt. Now, what everyone agrees on is that Jesus is talking about that part of uh, the requirements, one of the requirements for the continuing relationship is the fear of loss. Everyone agrees on that. Everyone agrees that Jesus is wanting people, he's wanting his disciples to be concerned about what losses are going to be there if they don't abide. Now, there are some who would say, this is Jesus saying, if someone... um, who professes to be a Christian, doesn't abide, doesn't continue a relationship, that person was never saved, and therefore they're lost forever. Uh, others would say, no, if a person, a person can, can know the Lord, but then choose not to continue on with the Lord, not abide in Christ, uh, and actually lose their salvation. Now, what I think this is talking about is not so much uh, the fear of loss uh, in the sense of loss of salvation, but loss of other things. Uh, and the reason I believe that is not because I'm trying to take away the, the seriousness of this passage. We'll see it's a serious passage no matter how you look at it. 
But I think there's other parts of Scripture, like we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, where there seems to be some pretty firm warnings to those who are in the church about you know, loss of, of salvation, if that's possible. Or at least, at least a sense of you can't be playing games with your relationship with God. But this context seems pretty clear to me, that Jesus is wanting to comfort and encourage his, his, uh, his disciples. He's wanting to say, you can have a continuing relationship with me. And he's wanting them to understand what this continuing relationship is going to require. And, and I think he is wanting them to realize, look, this means you have to be, you have to be afraid of the loss of, you have, the fear, you have to have the fear of loss. And here's the, what the losses are, I think they are, okay? The first would be a loss of fellowship. When he says, listen, um, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch. He's cast out as a branch. Who's got 1 John 1? Okay, read that, Brooke. You're supposed to be ready. We say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, John in, in that in his epistle is not talking about um, how a person is saved. He's talking about how serve, how a saved person lives. He's saying this this reality that if you belong to God uh, and you walk with God, then that means you walk in the light. You don't live in darkness and act like you're, you're, everything's fine. You walk in the light. You walk knowing your whole life, your whole actions, your whole attitudes are exposed to God. And therefore you keep short accounts. It's the same context where he says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I believe what, what John is saying, or what Jesus is saying here in John 15 is that there's going to be a loss of fellowship. If you don't abide, if you try to walk in darkness, if you try to act like everything's okay, but you live that kind of double life, he says, you're not going to have any fellowship with me. You're, you're going to lose that. Now, think about how difficult that would be for these guys to hear. They spent the last three and a half years following this guy around, sleeping in the same place he slept, eating at the same time he ate, hearing all the things that he, he taught, seeing all the miracles that he did, see, seeing, seeing the tension uh, uh, continuing to increase between him and the religious leaders. They've seen all that. They don't want him to go. And so he's saying, listen, you, you want to continue this relationship? Uh, then you need to, f- to re- recognize that you can, fellowship can be broken with us. Fellowship is going to be broken between John and Peter, or between Jesus and Peter, isn't it? And that's why we have John recording in, in, in chapter 21 how that was restored. Jesus having to say to Peter, do you love me? You know, then feed my sheep and bringing him back. Because fellowship was broken. So, but I also think he's talking about what we might call a loss of vitality. Because he says, that branch is cut away and it's withered. It's withered. Now, I want to read to you guys Psalm 32, a couple of verses from Psalm 32, which is a psalm celebrating forgiveness. But it's, it's cool the way David talks about uh, what it's like to live in a state of unforgiveness. Like in a place where you're not confessing your sins to God, where you're trying to say you're okay, but you're walking in darkness. Here's what he says. Listen, I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation because I like the way it it paraphrases. It says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. This is He's talking about the state of being in a place 
where you know you haven't received forgiveness because you don't want to deal with your sin. That's what it feels like. Now this is really important, and I think this is going to come out when we get to Hebrews chapter 12. It's really important to understand that the, the person who is generally born again, the person that knows God, cannot live in sin and not be miserable. Because God's hand is heavy on them. It doesn't mean they don't find pleasure in the sin. They might even have a good time. But as soon as that good time's over, you're just like, oh, I hate my life. I hate what I'm doing. And you're miserable. Why? Because God is so faithful to put his hand on us. To actually say, okay, look, you, I want you to feel the wither. <laughs> I want you to feel the shrinkage of your soul so that you'd long to come back to me. So you want to get away from this. So I think we're, we're meant to fear that. We don't want to be in that place. God doesn't want us to be in that place. He wants us to, to, to fear that. But also when he talks about here in verse 6, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned, I believe he's talking about a loss of reward. Again, listen to this New Living Translation. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, Paul writes, But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, that builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Now, can we be sober about this? Barely escaping through a wall of flames. Is that a pleasant experience? This is, this is Paul talking about judgment for believers. Now, we're all, we'll all be saved. We're, we're not going to be condemned. Christ is our righteousness. But the idea of losing reward is... Paul has to use the metaphor of almost being burned to death to say how painful it's going to be for us. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation, is he? It's really clear he's not. But the loss of reward should bother us. I have to tell you, every time I read that, that, that verse, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder... What it's going to look like when I stand before Jesus, you know? Just how quick it's going to go, poof. I was talking to Kathleen today. Uh, and uh, a lot of you guys know that, you know, Kathleen Clifford. You know that Kathleen, she's getting older and she's been serving, she's been walking with Jesus since she was like four or something. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, she's, a, she's a lovely lady, and, but she gets discouraged. She gets discouraged because she's older and she feels like, all. She, she said it this way. She said, well, you get old and you have lots of time to pray. And she meant it, as she could tell, she, she wished she could be more active in the way she used to be. And then she's discouraged. But I said to her, so you know what? I'm convinced that there, you're going to have far more rewards for that than you did for the whole lifetime of service before. Because it's funny how we think what we think we'll be rewarded for. Because most of what we think we're going to be rewarded for is based on how diligent I am. And diligence is a great thing. It's, man's, it's a man's precious possession, the scripture says. But we think that's what I'm going to be rewarded for. But I think we're going to be rewarded for just faithfulness. I just want to trust God. God, what would you have me do? I want to obey by faith. I don't want to lose that reward that comes from that. I'll tell you, that's what motivates me from pursuing uh, from pursuing other ministry opportunities that I think I would have more more fun in. And and, and, and I'll be honest, I hope this isn't stumbling, but honest, I'm tempted with that sometimes. 
I really am. I'm tempted when, when I go back to the States and, you know, I hear about, uh, you know, oh, there's a church five blocks from the beach that needs a pastor. It's tempting to think, Lord, is that you? Are you calling me? I can serve. It would be wonderful. When, when, when I was praying about where to plant a church in England, <coughs> I was asked to consider planting a church in this little town called Bude, which is right on the north, it's kind of the, the, the uh, right on the border of uh, Suffolk and, I'm Suffolk, right on the border of Cornwall and Devon. It's a really nice little surf town. And I was like, yeah, this will be, I think God might want me to do this. This is going to be great. And Sarah said, I'm not going to be a surf widow. We're not moving here, you know. But I was really tempted because I thought, yeah, it would be good. I could, I could still do your work, Lord, but I'd get what I want out of it. And it's funny how often that can be my motivation. How often we can do that kind of service for that kind of reason. Oh, I'll make a name for myself, or I'll have the kind of lifestyle I want, or I'll get the kind of praise of men that I'm hoping for, whatever the case might be. And all those things are going to burn up. They're going to burn up. So I believe what Jesus is talking about in John 15, he's wanting to prepare his disciples about, listen, you should fear loss. The fear of loss is what, what I'm requiring of you. You should say, I don't want to lose. And, and you, again, I, I encourage you, read uh, Jesus' words to the seven churches in Revelation. You see that kind of urgency. Take heed that no one steals your crown. Make sure you don't lose those rewards. He's not talking about don't lose your salvation, though there's some pretty heavy things there in those verses. But he's definitely talking about, look, man, this is serious stuff. Don't lose your reward. This is why we should think about, God, where do you want me to work? Where do you want me to live? Whom do you want me to marry? What kind of service do you want me to do? Not because, not in the sense of, oh, no, I'm so afraid to get it wrong. <coughs> but in the sense of, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I want you to be pleased with how I move forward in my life. We'd fear the loss of reward that much. So that's the other requirement. First one being complete dependence on the indwelling Christ. The second one being the loss of rewards. <coughs> the third one being in verse 7, what I'm going to call authentic communication. Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. What a great verse. I think we should memorize that. What a great verse. Let's see if I can do it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, <laughs> it shall be done for you. Something like that. That's a great verse. Basically, when Jesus is talking about you abide in me, we've talked about that, that kind of ongoing relationship. But he says, and my words abide in you. What does that mean? Does that just mean memorizing scripture? That's a good thing to do. I think it's more than that. I think when Jesus is talking about your, his words abiding in us, it means that we approach his word seeking to hear whatever he wants to say, wanting to hear him speak. God, I want to hear from you. So like we've been reading in Samuel for, for um, our house groups, you remember when Samuel was just a little guy still, and the Lord's calling Samuel into ministry, you guys remember that? And Samuel, Samuel, the Lord says. And every time you see a name repeated twice, it's, it's meant to be intimate. It's, it's meant to be a, a personal, intimate sort of call to somebody. And so he says, Samuel, Samuel, you, know, you get this idea of a the Father God sort of wanting this child to run, run to him. Samuel, Samuel, he says. And so Samuel gets up thinking it's Eli, right? Eli goes, no, 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 go back to bed. <laughs> Happens again, comes back. No, 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 go back to bed. Then finally Eli goes, you know what, maybe it's the Lord. Maybe God's actually calling you. 
So when he, and so Eli rightly tells him, when, when he says, send me some, you say, hear, Lord, or speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's the, the mindset we should have every time we open this book, or we hear a sermon, or we listen to a Bible study, or whatever the case might be, or someone shares with us scripture, even someone that we think is a bit wacky, we should say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's how the Bereans were in Acts 17. They received the word with eagerness. They didn't know who Paul was. They didn't think of Paul the way we think of Paul. But when Paul went to preach in Berea, they received the word with eagerness. Speak, Lord, your, your servant hears. And they went back to the book and thought, is this really what you said? That's how we should be. That's what I think it means to abide in his words abiding in us. God, we want to hear from you. We don't want to hear from John or Adam or Joe or any Francis Chan or whoever else we want to listen to on the, uh, you know, on the internet. We want to hear from you. We're, we're not so concerned that it has to be Texas Receptus. We're not so concerned, but we're concerned it's from you. We're concerned it's from you. What do you say? We want to hear from you. That's what I think he means by if my words abide in you. We want to hear from you, Jesus. As we said this morning, he's the better messenger. But also he says, if, you, if my word abides in you, he says, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, can we be honest? How often do we pray for things that we don't really want because we think it's the right thing to pray? Do you know what I'm talking about? Lord, would you bless that person because you love them? Lord, how many be content with this? You know, whatever the case might be. Thank you for this food. Leftovers. Again. You know, whatever the case might be. But we pray what we think God wants to hear. And that's the very thing God doesn't want to hear. God wants us to pray what we desire. But here's the thing. If we abide if his, in Him and His words are abiding in us, what are we going to begin to desire? What He desires, right? Delight yourself in the, in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. So what happens is God wants to give us a heart that desires what He wants so that we start begging Him for it. God, do that. Bring that into my life. Bring that into our church. Do this in our midst. Do that to my friend's heart who's not a believer. Do that, Lord. We start desiring that. And if we desire it, we know we desire something and we know we believe God will do it when we ask. I can't remember who said it. and I can't remember even where I read it this last couple weeks. But someone said that the action of faith is prayer. That's what it is. When you believe, you pray. When you believe that God is who He said He is and that God wants to do stuff for you, you pray. And you pray, if you believe He is who He is, you pray what you want the most. God, please do this. Jesus has given us this amazing assurance. He's saying, listen, you will ask what you will and what's going to happen? What's this We're so, we can't even say we're so afraid. Can it be true? What's going to happen? It will be done for you. It will be done for you. See, guys, our prayers are not about us overcoming God's reluctance. It's us finding God's willingness, grabbing onto His willingness. He wants to do so much more than we believe Him to do. And this is what He's trying to say to you. Here's the requirement for the continuing relationship. Here's what it needs to look like. Where we are saying, okay, God, I want to have real communication with you. I don't want to mess around. I'm going to tell you what I want. And you tell me where it's wrong or, what I'm, or where I'm, how I'm supposed to believe for it. Or how I'm supposed to pursue it. Well, that's what I want to know. I mean, this is where I struggle, I'll be honest, with this whole building thing. 
Because in my mind, I'm thinking, we need a building. I'm not asking for a big, posh multiplex. I just want some stupid little building where we can have offices. And I gotta, I'm not asking for much, Lord. What's the deal? But I keep having to say, Lord, is this the wrong desire? Do you not want us to have a building? Because I don't want to keep looking for it or praying for it if you don't want it. What do you want to do, Lord? What do you want to do? And it goes not just for things like buildings, material things. It goes for like, Lord, how do you want this church to run? How do you, what, what kinds of ministries do you want us to do? What do you want to do? Lord, how do you want me to communicate with my kids? I don't know what, the, what I'm doing half the time. Right, Brooke? <laughs> what do you want to do? That we're actually going to God and saying, Lord, I desire what you would have for me. So help me to abide in your words. Help me to abide in you. Your word abide in me. So that I'm asking what I want as it's lined up with you want. And I believe it's going to take place. That's what we mean by authentic communication. This is how that relationship grows, blossoms, continues. Those are the requirements. Okay, quickly. What are the results? Verse 8. By this, Jesus says, my Father is glorified. My Father is glorified. We talk about the glory of God, uh, the glory of anything. We're talking about the unique value of something, right? So when he says, my Father is glorified, he's saying, the unique value of my Father is seen. People see what my Father is like when? When we bear much fruit. Now, what does he mean by fruit? Well, let's talk about that. Who's got Matthew chapter 3, verse 8? Did I give that away to anybody? No, I didn't. I didn't? I didn't. Here's what Matthew 3, 8 says. Sorry. <laughs> it's where John the, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he's calling them to repentance, right? And some Pharisees come along, and they, they say, he says, what, are you going to be baptized also? And he really kind of gives them a, a telling off. And he basically says, look, don't act like you're repentant. He says, what? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. That's what he says. So the, the, that's what we're called to do. And when he says that, I can't remember if it's in Matthew's Gospel or one of the other Gospels. When he says that, some of the people around there are going, well, what do we do? And he says, well, if you're a soldier, stop taking bribes. You know, if you have two coats, give one to somebody else. He basically says, here's the practical things you need to do to show that you've turned away from your greed or your extortion or whatever the case might be. Bear fruit worthy repentance. Now, how is God glorified in that? Well, His holiness is seen in our repentance. When we say, okay, I'm going to turn away from this sin, I'm going to turn back to God, we are demonstrating that God is holy, that He's good, that He's righteous, and we want to do what's right. That's what, that's what it's about. Who's got uh, James 3? I know I gave that one away. James 3. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Mm-hmm. A harvest of righteousness. The, uh, I think it says in, in King James, New King James, it says good fruits. So let's talk about this fruit of wisdom. So in other words, when we pursue that kind of wisdom, the wisdom that's from above, you know what happens? We demonstrate the wisdom of God. When we are wanting to be pure of heart and peaceable, willing to yield, full of mercy, um, when we're doing that, we're demonstrating the wisdom of God. That's the way the Lord is. He's, he's, he's pure. He's peaceable. He, 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 he yields to us. He lets us make our choices. You ever thought about that? God could say, wrong choice, zap, 
the world would be a much better place in some ways. But he's patient with us, longing for us to come to repentance, to turn to him. So we display the wisdom of God when we act that way. God's seen in that wisdom, okay? Who's got Hebrews 13, 15? So that fruit of worship, that fruit of praise from our lips. You know what we're showing when we praise God from our hearts? When we give Him that sacrifice of praise? We're declaring His beauty. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're in the sports and you go to a sporting event and you go nuts over your team winning, what are you showing? They are awesome. You're declaring their worth by cheering the good work they did. So why is it any different than when we declare His worth and we sing our hearts out to Him. It's the same thing. We're declaring His praise. People see the glory of God when we say, you're worthy, worthy to be worshipped. It's really stoked that our, uh, some friends that we've, recent friends that we've made through Sarah's business came to church this morning. I was really, really blessed. I can't wait to have a sit down with them and find out what they thought because they don't really have a church background. Um, I know that Sarah said that they, uh, the wife came to, uh, to her and said, this is such, you have such a nice church. Everyone was just so kind. I just really can't wait to hear what else they kind of had to say. I'm sure some things were kind of like, whoa, never seen this before, whatever the case might be. But still, there's something beautiful about us declaring God's beauty and His worth in praise. Okay, who's got Philippians 4.17? Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Now that is Paul talking to the Philippians about wanting them to continue to be generous, to support his ministry. And what he's talking about there uh, is he's saying, listen, it's not that I need your money. He says, I'm wanting to see that fruitfulness of your growth. In other words, he's saying, look, that fruit, that evidence of generosity points to God's generosity. That's what it does. So when we are generous with people, you know what happens? God's generosity is seen. When we're generous towards the work of God, God's generosity is seen. That's what he's talking about. So again, all these things, listen, all these things are the result. The Father is glorified when we bear that kind of fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of of wisdom, the fruit of worship, the fruit of generosity. All those things say something about the God that we're obeying. That He's producing. It's us abiding with Him. It's us connected to Him that is producing that. It's God. It's You're only going to be generous for two reasons. You feel guilty. Three reasons, sorry. You feel guilty, or you want to puff yourself up, or you know how generous your God's been to you. You're only going to have wisdom, the wisdom of God, if you know that God has wisdom and you know He'll give it to you. You're only going to give the the the... the uh, the fruit of praise for your lips that actually is going to be fruit and not just to show if you believe he's worthy to be sung to, to be excited about. So that's the first result. God's glorified. The second result is this, okay? Look at verse 10. The second result is we actually enjoy obedience. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, right? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So there's a connection between obedience and love. Now Jesus is, is being really clear about this. He's saying, listen, 
I keep my Father's commandments because I love my Father. Now again, in the Godhead, there's no separation in the sense of there's never been a lack of fellowship. There's never been a lack of oneness. So there cannot be any of this, oh, I better do the right thing or he'll be mad. Oh, I better do the right thing or I will no longer be a son. God the Son can no longer cease being the Son any more than God the Father can cease being God the Father. It's impossible. He is who He is. He cannot change. So why obey? Because it's what love does. And, and this is the thing. As, as we abide in Him, as we depend completely on Him because we know that all depends on Him, then what happens is we begin to love God and to love God means I want to do what He says. I want to do what He says. It's that simple. It's not complex. We begin to enjoy obedience. Sometimes I struggle when um, I feel good about doing the right thing. Because I think, is that pride? To do the right thing and I feel prideful. Oh, I do the right thing, I feel good. You know, and sometimes it probably is. You know, I think sometimes it's just the pleasure of God. I think sometimes it's just the fact that it's good to do good. Sometimes it's like it's like uh, Eric uh, Little. Remember what, in the Chariots of Fire? You guys, did you ever see the movie The Chariots of Fire? You've seen Tarantino. You haven't seen Chariots of Fire. Vinny. <laughs> it's, <a great. laughs> it's a great movie. You'd like it, I think. Um, well, he, he talks about that in that movie. He, uh, Eric Little talked about when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. Because he was just a total man of God, committed to God. And, and he just knew that God had made him fast. And so he wanted to compete in the Olympics. And so he did. And he, he sensed the pleasure of God when he was doing that for the Lord. I think that's part of doing the right thing. I think we have to be careful. We don't let the enemy take away the joy of obedience. There's something glorious about just doing the right thing. Now, if we're looking down on other people because we think, oh, well, you're missing out. I'm doing the right thing. You're not. That's pride, you know. If we're thinking, I'm going to get what I prayed for now because I'm really obedient, that's pride. If we're just like, God, it's good to do what's good, that's just enjoying obedience. That's just the fruit of abiding. Yeah? Having been a bad kid my whole life, I like being a good kid. (laughs) I'm not that good. I still like being a bad kid too. That's part of my problem. But (laughs) I like being a good kid. It's good to be obedient. There's a joy in it. The last result, quickly, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, he says, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be filled, <coughs> might be full. Simply put, we experience his joy. Again, the joy that God the Father, God the Son, with God the Spirit have enjoyed forever. We begin to get a taste of that. Who's got 1 Peter uh, chapter uh yeah, one sixty-eight. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Hmm. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Hmm. Isn't that cool that when, when Peter talks about joy inexpressible and full of glory, it's in the context of going through fiery trials. 
So it's got nothing to do with our circumstances. It's got totally, us, it, it totally has to do with us believing that God's using our trials to purify our faith, to just prepare us for eternity. Joy, we experience that joy. That's the result of abiding in, in, in Christ. This is the thing, too. This is what happens. <coughs> we tend to think, i got to focus on abiding. I, gotta, I just need, to, or even, <coughs> even worse, we think, I need to get joy. Find joy. I need to get pumped up. I need to listen to some music or something. I gotta find some joy, you know. Or, or you know, I, I need to. I need to start bearing fruit. And then we start stressing, trying to bear fruit. I, I gotta start obeying. And we are striving to do something when actually all we need to do is abide. We need to simply say, Lord, I'm gonna just stay with you. I'm gonna completely depend on you. I'm just gonna seek you because it's all about you anyway. And you will bring this result. If I abide in you, I will bear this kind of fruit.